0: The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. All right. In the summer of 2000, uh, I started flexing my uh, mixed, mar- not mixed martial arts my martial arts muscles with some knowledge. I have two experiences with the martial arts in my life and, and I'm going to share both of them with you very quickly. Because that's how big my experience is. In 2000, uh, the Summer Olympics were in Sydney, Australia, and as I do every kind of four years or two years, you kind of geek out about something that you never thought you would before. Winter Olympics, I'm always excited about curling. I don't know, it's like shuffleboard, but they just—it's—it's it's fascinating. This year, it was judo, and so I'm watching like 45 minutes. Maybe an hour and 45 minutes of judo. And my sister's like, hey, we need to go run an errand. And I'm like, I'm kind of in the middle of something. And she's like, we're going. And so we went. And we, we stopped off at one of her friends' house. And I walk into the house. And she's talking with her friend. I walk into the house, and it's on. Judo is still on because it's on for like four hours on probably... USA channel in the middle of the day, so I'm standing there, and I'm watching judo, and I'm like, oh, did you see that last bout or fight or whatever, and he's like, oh, yeah, I did, and, and I drop all of my judo knowledge on this guy in about five minutes, because it was just the 45 minutes before that I'd learned something. What I failed to do was realize that when I walked into his house, behind me was a wall of trophies tall trophies like the trophies that are this tall and have like seven tiers because I didn't know that he ran a uh, taekwondo gym and he knew what he was talking about so before I could insert my foot further down my throat he he kind of realized this and he was like oh that's cool so you're kind of learning about this I'm like yeah and he proceeded to tell me the beauty and the art of judo And don't correct me after, because I know this is probably not all completely right. But from what I understand, from what he told me, judo is this thing where it takes the leverage of one person and flips it back on them. It's a smart sport. It's a sport of leverage. Um, So if if someone were to attack me, I could take that force and use it against them. That's my first experience with martial arts. Second experience with martial arts came like four or five years later when I was in college, and it's freshman year And and everyone's kind of standing there first couple weeks of school very similar to now And it's one of those residence hall meetings, and I kind of had my buddies that I'd already met before and I don't know if girls do this but guys kind of size each other up. You're like, okay, he's the athlete That guy has been carrying around an acoustic guitar the entire time, so we know what his game plan is and you just kind of go around, and you pick these people, and you're like, okay, this is where they're at. So my buddies and I are joking around, and we get back to, you talk about high school the first two weeks, because that's all you know. So we get there, and we're, we're talking about high school, and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is what I did. I was kind of well-rounded. And he's like, well, I was a wrestler. This is a guy from Minnesota. And I was like, oh, wrestling, that's where you guys all get in leotards and uh, grab each other. <laughs> I didn't know any better. I didn't do wrestling here in Texas. He's like, no, Barrett, it's actually much different than that. It, it's pretty athletic, yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you guys are just running around in spandex. And he's like, well, why don't you try it out? So I bit. And I was like, yeah, well, how hard could it be? I'm like, I'm kind of bigger than you, and I'm ready to go. And so on the, the lounge of our residence hall, he's like, you can, you can just start. And so we go here, and somebody says, Go. I reach for his leg. Two seconds later, I'm on my back, pretzelled. My legs are over my head, and he's on top of me. One, two, three. You're done. It was he did the judo move on me, and I didn't even see it coming. So why do we talk about this? We talk about this because this is what's happening in our text today. It happens all the time in the New Testament. These religious scholars or people they're trying to trick or trap or attack Jesus and Jesus does this with so much beauty and grace, he takes their test and he flips it and he shows us a new reality he shows us a new reality we're starting this week, we're starting a series called The Art of Neighboring, Love Where You Live and we're not talking about how to subdue your neighbors I'll leave that for your HOAs, you guys can figure that out, but we're trying to figure out what does it look like to neighbor well And it's not just Axe Church Lander or Axe Church Lakeway, but it's a citywide movement. They did this two years ago, uh, and we're doing it again. So right now, there's churches around our city who are talking about the art of neighboring. Uh, The first of the year, there's going to be billboards around. Love where you live. The art of neighboring. You're going to be seeing this around. And then further on into 2016, there's going to be more talking about this. So we're just having a little taste right now. We're dipping our toe in. And then we'll dive in later. We have to start here at the Good Samaritan because it's so well known. I mean, it's, it's one of those biblical stories that has transcended just the Christians and the Christian culture. And it's in everything. Part of my research for this week was watching the Good Samaritan Law episode of Seinfeld. And that passed for something. But, but there's TV shows about it. And there's laws about it. There's ministries that are named Samaritan's Purse because this story is so well known. And it's so well known, but I think we miss certain bits. There's a clarity that comes in knowing what the Good Samaritan's about and finding the places in it. So if you have your Bibles open, uh, you can open up to Luke chapter 10. Um, I like to do that just to see what's around it. In my Bible. And you can see in chapter 10, Jesus is kind of like laying the coursework or laying the parameters out for what it looks like to be a disciple. So early on, he sends out the 72. He sends out people and he says, hey, this is what a disciple looks like. Go and heal. But then he also gives them a command. He says, I want you to proclaim. Proclaim that the kingdom of God is near. So that's the first thing that disciples do. They proclaim the kingdom of God is near. And then later on in chapter 10, he gets to the Great Samaritan and he says, this is how disciples live. They're neighbors to each other. And we have to know this, that it's a balance. Some of us are really good at at being neighborly and loving our neighbors and doing things that serve our neighbors. And that's great, but it's not the whole picture. You proclaim that the kingdom of God is near. Some of us are great at proclaiming, but we we can't help our neighbor for squat. And there's a balance here. There's a balance of proclaiming and neighboring. So let's dig into our text. It starts like this today. And behold, which is biblical language for, check this out, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. He put Jesus to the test and he said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's easy for us to skip over this because we can think, oh, lawyer, I, got, I know what a lawyer is. A lawyer is like a civic person. I see him on daytime commercials. That's what a lawyer is. But, but right here, we have to realize that a lawyer is more like a religious expert. Because the law was something given from God. And these people knew every little bit of the law. They knew everything. So this religious expert, this religious scholar, came up to Jesus to test him. And he wanted to test Jesus because Jesus did not fit his mold This rabbi broke the mold. He was strange. He was a bit of a rebel. It looked like his followers broke commandments and broke this law that this religious person held so tightly. So he comes to test Jesus, and and he asks him with this first question, and in this first question, Jesus takes, and he does this beautiful, aha, judo move. He says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus takes the question, all the force and anger of that question, and he turns it. And he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Which just kind of puts a smile on my face because Jesus knew the law. The religious expert knew the law. But they were doing this kind of like mental, verbal sparring And they both knew that the only way to inherit eternal life, what this guy's question was, was either to keep the law 100% all by yourself or or live under the Torah and practice the sacrificial system. And so when Jesus asked, how do you read it, he's asking the lawyer for the law. And the lawyer has two options here. One that would make this sermon about five hours and one that makes this sermon very palatable. First option is for him to go through and list off all Of the pieces of the law, the 613 laws. And he could have done that. But, thank you, he distills all of those laws and he takes them down and he opts for the summary portion. And he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. I want to encourage you, um, sometimes when you're reading the Bible, it, it's just, you can, you can read through it and just fly through. It takes me, it, it's difficult for me not to just fly through the Bible and be like, oh, story, check, story, check, story, check. Try to put yourself and see what the expressions are. This is one person's take on what I think the expressions are. When he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, I can just see Jesus kind of standing there like smiling with a sarcastic grin in his face like, yeah. Yeah, way to go. You got it. Way to go, buddy. You're doing so well. I know you know the law. I know the law. Way to go. That's my picture of Jesus because he's got him like in the middle of the trap and he's about to boom. He answers this question and it's it's rough because it's rough for, for this lawyer because what he's saying is so difficult. He distills it all down, and he's asking, hey, what do I have to do? I mean, we can think about it this way. With all of our heart, when, when our tank is on empty, when our fuel level is at zero, and my heart's kind of just spent, do I love God with all of my heart at that moment? Is that my first natural reaction? Or soul when when someone has just passed away, or you're watching the news again, and something terrible has happened, and your soul is in the pit, is the first reaction, "Oh God, praise you for letting me be in this moment right now." It's not mine. Strength after moving chairs or or doing your job. Um, or working hard at practice or something like that, is your first reaction after that, okay, I'm going to hop in the car, and I'm just going to see how God can have me serve more after I'm tired. Or maybe for you, mind, this might be where a lot of us are. I'm spent at the end of a day. I want to go home, turn on Netflix for two hours, eat some food, and just veg out. My mind isn't saying, how can I mentally figure out how to love God and to serve God more? This lawyer kind of walked into here saying, oh, I know what's going on. And he says, this is where the bar is at. And I'm sure Jesus, this is why I think Jesus was like, oh, yeah, way to go. You are smart and you've got everything figured out. Way to go. But then that's rule number one. If that wasn't hard enough, there's rule number two. Love your neighbor as yourself. And again, Jesus, I'm sure he's, way to go, buddy. You are nailing it today. After you've loved God with every single fiber of your being, the call is to love your neighbor with all the force, the ingenuity, the creativity, and the passion that you sustain yourself with. Like they're equal to you. And so Jesus answers him, and he says, you have answered correctly. Key words. Do this, do all this to this lawyer, and you will live. Jesus, Judah, move number two. The lawyer comes in for the test, and Jesus flips it. He comes in to test it with a question, and Jesus flips it on him. Jesus here is allowing us, along with the lawyer, to see how big this law really is. How big and how unattainable this law is. It is a high High standard. And it's interesting because he could have listed off all of those things. And we could list off all of those things. And he could have listed it off and been like, well, I didn't eat pork or shellfish. I went to the synagogue. Check. Um, I didn't wear fibers that were mixed. Check. I'm doing all right. Didn't murder anyone. Check. And he could have gotten this self-righteous kind of air to him. He's like, hey, Jesus, I got an 87%. I passed on the 613 laws. And we could do it, and we could be like, well, didn't murder anyone. Came to church on Sunday. Uh, Didn't have an affair this week. Uh, Didn't steal from my neighbor, yada, yada, yada. And we could do the exact same thing. We could have this self-righteousness come over us because we can check off some laws. But when the lawyer distills it down to those two, it becomes the bar is set so high that it's so unattainable, to love God with every fiber of your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you look at those two lists, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, the law in itself is a beautiful thing. God gave us the law so that we could live together in peace. I want to be able to love God with every fiber of my being. I really do. I know I don't, but I do. I want to love my neighbor as myself, but I don't. It's a great, the law, it's, it's a great way of life, but it's never the way to life. The lawyer had that confused. He was thinking, instead of it being a great way of life and embracing God's mercy, he was like, I'm going to do this all, I'm going to do it myself, and it's going to be my way to life. At this moment, in the, the sparring match, the lawyer knows he's kind of, he's beat. So the bar's here, and he says, in order to justify himself, he tries to lessen the load. And so he's like, eh, well, fine, you win. Who's my neighbor? Your bar's here. How can I kind of limit that and make it smaller? So Jesus tells tells him a story, knowing what the guy's worldview is. The guy played all his cards. He says, all right, in my view of God, I can... If if I just do enough, we'll be cool. If I just love, you know, that person enough, I'll be cool. It's like, what is the minimum effective dose? What's the little bit I have to take to make this outcome, this life, be be good? Or what's the 80-20 principle? If I could do 20% of the loving, what's 80% of the outcome I could get? Or, Or what's the baseline for loving my neighbor? That's what he's asking there. He's trying to weasel his way out. And he points his cards, and it's kind of pitiful, and, and I know I do the same thing. What, what's the bare minimum that I can squeak by with? So at this point, Jesus tells the story. He's like, a man's going down from Jerusalem, and you always go down from Jerusalem because it's on a mountain, down to Jericho. This would have been a common uh, path that they would have known. If you look on a map, the terrain map, it's very rocky. It's probably a very narrow path. And there would have been lots of nooks and crannies for robbers to hide in. And of course, boom, <laughs> robbers get them. They strip him, they beat him, and they leave him half dead on the road. And we know this story. The, le- uh, the priest walks up, sees him land there, whoosh, scurries off to the side. The Levi walks up, whoosh, sees him land there, scurries off to the other side. Samaritan walks up, stops, sees him, has compassion on him, and then he goes to him. He binds up his wounds. He puts him on his donkey or whatever animal he had, and he takes him away to safety. And then at the next day, he says to the innkeeper, hey, here's some money. I want to be back. All of his financial burdens, I want to take care of. That's the story that Jesus offers us. And he, he shows us, and he shows the lawyer, hey, if you want to do it, this is the baseline. This is where we're at. This is what it looks like to be a neighbor. If you really want to do it, This is the standard. And that's tough. It's tough to swallow that that the bar is right here and and I'm not. And so what I do and what, what uh, what Jesus answered before the lawyer could even ask it was, well, what can I do to limit it? What can I do to limit what that standard is? And so Jesus puts people in the story to destroy those limits before we can even ask the question. Think about the characters in this story. We've got the Samaritans on this side and the Jews on this side. There was serious bad blood here. There was serious racism happening here. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. They both thought each other were religious blasphemers. Racial distance, religious difference, geographical distance. And this is who Jesus throws in the story. It's not the Levite or the priest who stops, it's the Samaritan. This is the bar that Jesus, that he, he lifts. So there's no limit on who it is that we're called to be a neighbor to. But there's not a limit on when or when somebody deserves it either. If I were to walk down a dark alley, knowing that it was dangerous, you'd probably say, well, yeah, he kind of deserves some trouble. Same thing with this guy walking down the road. Doesn't say he's with a group. He's walking alone. He probably deserved... I mean, he wasn't using his brain. What do you got? If you think about it, the, uh, the Levite and the Samaritan... There's, I love this whenever it gets, gets preached because there's always these different ways you can take the Levite and, or the, Levite and the, the priest. They're like, well, you know, they would have been unclean. That's true. I think, hey, it's just smart to get out of town when there's trouble in the area. You walk up on a half-dead person, uh, the robbers would have left him for dead. And so if he's still breathing, they're probably still around. So when they scurried, they were probably being smart. The Samaritan walks into this situation, and he stops. And he risks his life. Because there is near danger around. The guy on the road didn't deserve it at all. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. The Samaritan walked, picked him up, and went away. Jesus puts this in the story because when we try to limit, hey, what does it look like to be a neighbor? It's not who. It's not when people deserve it. Because that guy on the road didn't deserve it. So he takes that excuse and pushes it aside. And then he also pushes aside the limit of how much. How much do I give? And this is easy to see. This American goes off. He, first, he risks his life. That's huge. Takes him to the innkeeper, and then he writes a blank check. And he says, your burdens are now my burdens, and I'm going to give you life in exchange. This, this is the baseline that Jesus tells with this story. When I look in the mirror, I look at this, and I'm like, that's not even close to me. That just, that's craziness. And and I'm nowhere close to that. And, I mean, just think about it. If you had somebody in your neighborhood who did this or who lived life like this, it would be nuts. You would look at that person and you're like, well, they're crazy, for one. um, And they're strange. There's kind of a little bit of cool stuff going on there. But you're still crazy and extremely weird. No one would do this. What would drive someone to do this? What's the, the force behind this person To do this. And there's a few ways to look at this. And I think the common one we go to. Is morality. This is what we do. We're moral people. And there's two types of morality. You can have secular morality. Where it's like. You know. We've reached this point in humanity. That why don't we all just help. Or. Hey. I'm a good person. So I'm going to help that guy. And that's just where we're at. Or. I'm. Progressive, So I care about people, and I vote these ways, or I don't vote these ways, because I want, I want, I want to help. And, and we can have this, this secular moralism that, that gets us here, because we want to help, the desire's there, but, but it doesn't bridge the gap. But there's also, we can't just knock on secular stuff, there is religious moralism as well. If you hear someone say, well, the Bible tells me to do this good stuff. That can be taken as, hey, this is part of what you do, or it can be taken as moralism. All religions have it. The Koran tells me to do this good stuff. The Torah tells me to do this good stuff. I'm meant to do this good stuff. And Jesus shatters this type of moralism when he puts the priest and the Levite in the story. Because the priests and Levite, they were the people who, who were religious, but it was kind of in their character that they would have just normally done that. They would have been the good person to do Hey, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to bandage this guy up and, and do it. But, but when they walk away, we realize that moralism, whether it's religious, secular, whatever, gets you here, and God calls us to this baseline, to this standard. I'll just play the card right now. The key to this parable is where Jesus places the lawyer. There's all the options. Could have placed him in the... It would have been natural for him to place him in the Levite or the, uh, the priest's spot. He could have put him in the Samaritan spot. He could have put him in the innkeeper spot or maybe even the donkey spot. But, but he puts the Samaritan, or the, the lawyer on the ground. And he lets him be the person... On the ground. Because he's trying to teach the lawyer, hey, what does it look like for you to be a neighbor? And in another judo move, uh, when the lawyer asks, hey, what do I need to do to be a neighbor? Like, who do I need to be a neighbor to? Jesus takes that and he turns it and he says, well, who was the neighbor to you? Who proved to be the neighbor to you? And it's one of those moments where you're like, I wonder what was in his eyes when he said that. To the lawyer. Well, who was the neighbor to you? Who came to you while you were still enemies, while there was division, when you deserved death? Who saw you, had compassion on you, and then lifted you up and took your self righteousness, your sin, and your burden and and put it on his shoulders? Who took you to safety? Who rescued you? And took your burden and, and gave you a blank check. When Jesus asked, Who proved to be the neighbor? the lawyer responded, And, and you got it, he can't even say the Samaritan. There's that much oh, hate or racism or self righteousness in his heart. He's got to grit his teeth and say, The one who showed mercy. And Jesus' response, you, go and do likewise. And that can be scary. It's either, if you want to do this alone, that's the standard. Go figure it out. Or, he could realize, how do I really be a neighbor? It's something has to happen in me. He came to us, and this is for you and me, he came to us, he saw us, And he looked at us and he had compassion on us. He took our sin and our shame and our guilt and he put it on himself. The message version of the Bible has a great passage that they've uh, translated from, first, uh, or from John chapter 1. And it says, The Word became flesh. And the Word is Jesus. Jesus became flesh. And he said he moved into the neighborhood. While we were in the road... Jesus moved into the neighborhood. And if you're a guest with us today, or if you're you're kind of wondering, why do the Christians celebrate the cross? Because it's weird, it's an execution stake. Why does that happen? We believe that, that on that cross, Jesus took that upon himself. He took the sin and the shame and the guilt and the burden of us on himself. And then three days later when he rose again, all of that stuff that died with him was gone, And he exchanges that burden that we had for life. And it's only in that life that we're transformed. You don't have to try to do all the rules. But it's in that life that we're transformed. He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Changes the death and sin for life. So the next couple weeks we're going to be talking about neighboring. And... We have to start here. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York, and he's got this quote. We're going to throw it on the board. It says, you'll never be a neighbor until you get a neighbor. We're not going to tell you to run out and go try this on your own, because that's not going to work. You have to be neighbored first, and our neighbor is Jesus. We can only practice the art of neighboring when Jesus first neighbors us. And it's through that transformation, through that new life, that, that he sends us out. When he says, go and do likewise, it's, it's, it's from that heart. It's not a morality, because it only gets us this far. He doesn't offer us a new law, because he knows we can't keep that. He says, I'm going to trade your burden for life, and I'm going to give it to you new." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us life. We thank you for neighboring us. And it's not just a cheesy, cliche thing to say, hey, thanks, God, for neighboring us. You actually did. You moved in, you became flesh, and, and you took all of our mess, and you, uh, you forgave us. You gave us life, and we thank you for that. We praise you for that. Be with us as we study neighboring and, and move forward in this series.